Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I'm one of your co-hosts, John Robb, joined here by my wonderful co-host, Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how you doing? Doing good. Uh, man, I need a nap, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be back. It's good to be back. I hope everybody enjoyed the uh, Chris Friesworth interview that we did a couple weeks ago. We have another pre-recorded interview that we're going to do tonight for you. But first, we have to remind you that all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books. So please make sure you visit KensingtonBooks.com for more information on their works. And I just got a Kensington book in the mail that I'm going to start reading soon, which is Kevin O'Brien's new one. Is it called? It's called the the Betrayal Wife or the Wife Betrayal, something like that. The Betrayed Wife. Kind of, the Betrayed the Wife. The Betrayed yeah, okay. Wife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Betrayed Wife. Yeah. I just got that arc, so I'm going to be curious to dig into that. Love my Kevin books. I need my read my horror in uh, darkness. <laughs> so I kind of read the way he writes it in dark. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, I have it too, and I'm looking forward to diving in. But our interview tonight is by an author whose book just came out uh, last week. It's called The Paris Diversion, and it's none other than New York Times best-selling author Chris Pavone. Uh, we did this interview a little couple months back, and uh, we saved it here to play when the book released, and it just came out uh, last Tuesday on uh, May the seventh. So make sure you uh, check out that called The Paris Diversion. And uh, don't forget, we're going to be at Thriller Fest, so if you're going to be coming to Thriller Fest, please make sure you stop and say hello to uh, either one of us. Jeff will be there a lot more than I will be there, but you can't miss me. I wear Dodger gear, and I wear a Dodger hat, and I'm pretty much the only one in New York City who's probably wearing a Dodger hat, so I'm pretty easy to spot, and I'm 6'4". So. Well, and um, no one has poor taste like that anyway, usually, at these things. So, <sighs> Yeah, whatever. I'm the best dressed <laughs> person there. I got the best headgear of anybody in that place, and you know it. <laughs> okay. Are you going to cover but, the Dodger logo then? I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> Who knows? All right. It's just sad that Clayton Kershaw already gave up another freaking home run, second batter of the day. Oh. one nothing. Yeah, but, let's talk about how bad the Mariners are now after they start off so awesome. Oh, yeah, I know. Poor Mariners. Such, such a great start. Usually they implode in August. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe they'll get back in August. Maybe they'll surprise everybody. So well, who knows? But we digress. Yes. Uh, we don't want to get into our sports into our sports talk. We did enough of that with Bob Dugoni. But again, if you're going to be at Thriller Fest, I will be taking pitches. So if you want to pitch your book to Suspense Publishing, I will be there. Uh, you can also probably catch me in the hallway, but just not the bathroom. I've had that happen, and that's just awkward. I don't mind saying hello to you in the bathroom. I prefer. I'm just going to be honest with you. I prefer not to talk to anybody in the bathroom. It's just like a thing of mine so everybody's got their quirks to wait till i get out and then i'm okay don't get me going in and don't get me in that's all i ask just get me coming out you can wait for me stand outside and i'll be more than happy to talk to you all you want just not in the bathroom please that's all i ask (laughs) all right (laughs) yeah it's just it's just one of those awkward things that happened to me in P and W A and you know in Seattle and that was just it's just awkward. I just don't need that. Why am I not surprised? So, <laughs> yeah, I know. But again, everybody, we are uh, pleased to have you here. We'll be back in two weeks. Not sure who our guest is going to be. We'll have somebody coming up, and 
make sure you check out our Twitter because I'm, I tweet everything out. Of course, the website, suspensemagazine.com, and you'll see a radio, uh, Suspense Radio link, and you can go there, and I'll post the shows uh, as we get going on there. So without any further ado, Jeff, you ready? You got anything else you want to talk about? Any books nope, that you are, are in the middle of reading? I'm doing Kevin's. Who you got in your hand? Uh, I'm currently reading a Stephen Kuntz's new book uh, called The Russia Account. I'm reviewing it for Booklist. Ah, cool. Yeah. Cool. All right. So uh, here we go, everybody. Again, this is author Chris Pavone, and the book is Great called book. The Paris Diversion, but you'll hear it in the interview. Okay, everybody. Well, thank you so much for joining us again here tonight. We're super excited uh, to be with you. Jeff, how you doing? Doing great. Good, good, good. So this is uh, another pre-recorded interview that we're doing that you're hearing probably uh, the last Tuesday in April. Uh, I have to see what the date is, but you're hearing it last Tuesday in April. And the author that we are going to be talking to tonight is first time we'll be able to speak with him on the phone is Chris Pavone. And the latest book is called The Paris Diversion. It is the second book in his series, uh, or I guess you can call it a series now for the second book, with um, American expat Kate Moore. And the first book was called The Expat. So we are pleased to uh, be able to speak with Chris. So you ready, Jeff? Yes, looking forward to this. All right. So, Chris, how you doing, my man? Thanks so much for coming on. It's nice to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for doing this. Yeah, I was waiting for you to say something, Jeff. You're like sitting there. I thought, <laughs> oh, sorry. I, I thought maybe the snow I'm got you. I'm starstruck. I'm a huge fan of Chris, so uh, I'm excited he's doing this for us. So, Well, yeah, Chris, hey, this is the first time I've ever spoken with you. So, again, I want to thank you so much for coming on and doing this. And like I mentioned, so the Paris Diversion, I guess you can call it now the sequel, um, maybe not a series yet, but we'll uh-huh. call it the sequel to The Expats. And... Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you have going on in the Paris Diversion? Uh, The Paris Diversion is a a book about a woman who discovers that a terrorist attack going on in her city where she lives, which is Paris, is not exactly what it appears to be. Um, It appears to be a man in a suicide vest at the Louvre. In fact, it is a man in a suicide vest at the Louvre. But who is that man and what are his goals are not clear at the beginning of the day. And Kate takes it upon herself for various reasons to find out what exactly are his goals. And what she discovers over the course of the day is that they're not things that anybody could possibly expect. What made you decide to return to Kate and the characters from Expats? Well, I love Kate. I loved writing the expats. Uh, that that book and that point of view is the the most close to my own experience of living in Luxembourg and being a stay-at-home trailing spouse with little kids and leaving your career behind to follow somebody else to a different continent and start a whole new life and figure out how to be a whole new person. And that's the first novel I wrote, and I started writing it while we were living in Luxembourg. And I, it's not that I don't, didn't also love writing my other books, but uh, the expats is the closest to my own experience. And I always intended to write a continuation of Kate and Dexter's story and possibly a continuation of the plot of the expats, but I didn't want to foist any type of second-rate sequel onto what I thought were 
first-rate characters, and I didn't want to write a series, frankly. I didn't want to get I didn't want to get pigeonholed into that sort of job where I needed to produce a new book in, in this series every year. I wanted to write standalones, and I wanted to do it on a schedule that would allow me the room to write what I think would be the best sorts of books that I could write. Um, so I wasn't planning on writing a sequel to The Expats, and I don't, in fact, consider the Paris version to be a sequel to it. I was just hoping that one day I'd stumble upon a new story that could involve Kate Moore. And it took a long time. It took many years, and I was, in fact, writing a completely different book when I went to Paris for vacation. I was planning on writing that new book in Paris, and I, I had the whole thing outlined. I'd written 100 pages. And as soon as I got off the airplane, I noticed uh, all these police around and the military. This was in 2016, right after the Charlie Hebdo and the November attacks. There was so much violence in Paris, and it was really a city under siege. And I could not stop thinking immediately about my experiences living through 9-11 in downtown New York. And all of a sudden, this new idea for a completely new book that I'd never thought of before just exploded into my consciousness within hours of walking around Paris. And it was a story about terrorism, but not in New York, instead in Paris. And Kate Moore was involved. And I started working immediately and had the most productive work week of my life that week, uh, writing something that I had no idea I'd ever write. Oh, that's wonderful. And I hope, uh, as a fan, I'll get to see this other book you were starting to write before you... I'm just saying. I'm sure I'll finish that. (laughs) Okay. Um, You did mention this, and I'm curious. Um, In a world of publishing where everyone seems to be forced to come out with at least a novel a year, James Patterson's already published three since we started talking. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm wondering, since you're one of the rare ones that doesn't do that, do you feel this pressure? No, I don't. Um, Part of that is that I don't write a series. Um, Part of that is, I mean, I hate to call it a business model, but it it sort of is that uh, part of the idea of writing a book a year, I used to be a book editor. I was a book editor for a while, and I I was surrounded by by book-a-year people in all sorts of fields of endeavor. There are a lot of people producing a lot of books every year, and part of the logistics of that means that the publisher has already made a lot of important decisions about the book, before the author has finished writing it, including the pub date, including the marketing plan, including a lot of things. And then the book arrives, and as the author, you don't have all that much time to make changes to it. Uh, You've written a draft, and if the editor doesn't love it, if the marketing team doesn't love it, if you don't love it, um, nevertheless, you've got to finish it up within four to eight weeks and get it into copy editing, and get it into the pipeline and on its way to publication, uh, or else that's what the year isn't going to happen. And my experience is that a lot of people need a lot more time to make their books great than that amount of editing time that you have when you publish a book a year. And I didn't think that I was the type of writer who could be fast about it, frankly. I didn't have that confidence in myself. I don't know that I have that work ethic, uh, and I don't, I don't know that I want to. I want my books to have more time in me to gestate and for me to figure out what's the best possible version of this book that it can be. And then I want to be able to share it with not just one person who's going to give me feedback, but with five or ten people 
who are going to tear the things to shreds, and then I can spend a year revising it based on that feedback. And that's what I've been doing. Um, and that's simply not possible if you're doing a book a year. So I have no intention of publishing a book a year. And I think a lot of people do it because it's an expected thing to do. Um, and a lot of people do it because they think it's an expected way to be successful. And in a way, that's true in some circumstances. But you look at people who have bestseller lives with book a year and possibly they're achieving success after book number 15. And book number 15 through 25 are only 10 years of work, um, but still that's a quarter century of working to get you there. Um, and I just don't want to do that. I can understand that. And uh, I have to say, your books are amazing. So Thank you. take all the time you need to make them amazing <laughs> still. <laughs> and so, by the way, which is not to say, I think there are a lot of people who are writing great books every year, um, but it's it's not a way of working that I can imagine. And um, I I greatly respect people who can do that. I respect their work ethic. I I respect how much they must work and how little sleep they must get. Um, and I I I don't begrudge them that. I just don't want to do it myself. Gotcha. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. So, Chris, for people that are just kind of finding out and and now maybe knowing the expats or or not and and just starting to find out who you are give us a little background of who Kate Moore is Uh, Kate Moore was a CIA operative and uh, she never thought that she was going to have a husband or children or a family and yet she stumbled into having all of those things when she was in her mid-30s, and she decided that she was going to remove herself from the day-to-day lives of being uh, an operative overseas and just live in Washington, and she got herself an office job, and she never told her husband what it was that she really did for a living. He thought that she wrote grants, and then uh, after a few years of this and a couple of children, he got a job in Luxembourg, which is exactly what happened in my household. My wife got a job in Luxembourg. And Kate, like me, moved abroad and started a whole new life where she did not have a job, where she was tending to children and cooking and cleaning and trying to make a new social life and planning travels and being this very specific but common thing, a trailing spouse expat, living somewhere else while your spouse has a job. Um, And Kate decided after not that long of it that she was not entirely satisfied with this existence, as in fact did I. Um, And I turned my attention to writing a novel about this imaginary person who in turn turned her attention to figuring out what the hell they'd actually moved to Luxembourg to do. She realized that it was not exactly what Dexter claimed was the reason. There's a reason why that first book won so many awards, by the way. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, well, I'm you. curious I'm curious why you – well, at least with the four books you have so far, the uh, thematic elements are kind of similar. You know, you're dealing with sort of the spy world. You're dealing with family elements as well. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? I, I think – the most compelling thing about spy novels is also the most compelling thing about uh, a lot of 
domestic thrillers and a lot of a lot of novels period which is lying to people in intimate relationships i think that's something that uh everybody has either real experience with or real suspicion of at some point or another i don't think there's anybody who goes through their lives without thinking how much do I really know this person who I'm sharing my life with? Even if you've only been sharing your life with that person for a month or you've been doing it for 50 years, sooner or later, some doubts creep in. And the doubts that go into a domestic thriller and the doubts that go into an espionage relationship, I think are very similar doubts. How how much do I know this person? How much can I trust this person? And I think a lot of spy novels are pushing the bounds of credulity and what we expect readers to accept in terms of, of plot and conflicts and uh, the boundaries of intimacy and the action. But I'm trying to con- construct books where that sort of lying in intimate relationships that goes on in espionage stories takes a more immediate and hopefully slightly more credible realm in a real relationship, a relationship between people who are married. Nice. Yeah, I get, yeah definitely. Nice. So here's a question, Chris. Um, and I've kind of always wondered this, and I think you're a really good person to ask because of this book right here. But when you're writing about a sensitive subject like a mass shooting, mass bombing, something like that, that is very prevalent, you know, in today, and like we have the mass shootings here in the United States. When you're writing about a subject like that, what kind of keeps you from going too far? Are you sensitive to the fact that it is a sensitive subject when you are writing about it? I am, um, and uh, I have not, in fact, written about uh, a mass bombing. That the Paris diversion looks like it is going to be a mass bombing, but. Right. Uh, spoiler alert here, it's it's not. And I don't think that I would really write a book about uh about a real bombing. I I mean I I don't intend to. And I think that the 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 exploitation of grief, the exploitation of terrorism is um not something that I really do want to pursue. I don't want to pull those types of strings on readers so I, well, it, it has been so far, and you know, I'm I'm very very attuned to how much violence and terrorism there is, and I I did have a really firsthand and dramatic experience of terrorist events here in New York, where uh, I lived just a couple of blocks from the World Trade Center on mm. September 11th, and um, I was home in an apartment that uh, that's chief advantage was that the giant windows were filled completely with views of the World Trade Center. And there were a couple of times that day when I thought I was going to die. And then there was a month when I couldn't live there because the entire neighborhood was evacuated. And then there were a total of three months when that uh, those piles of rubble took 100 days to extinguish. And meanwhile, I was living hundreds of feet away from it. And the sound of earth movers and the National Guardsmen with assault rifles and the stadium lights blaring all through the night. It was a war zone that I lived in. And that was really what inspired me to want to write about a terrorist event. Again, was the feeling, that feeling of terror. But I didn't actually want to write a depiction of people dying. 
of massive numbers of people dying that uh, that's not what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about the feeling of terror, not the experience of death. Um, so I, I'm just curious, um, having since you experienced something like that, for myself, you know, I saw the images over and over and just I, I can't get over them. Um, was that one of the reasons behind you uh, sort of leaving New York and traveling abroad for a while? No, not at all. Um, we we left New York in 2008 because my wife got a job in Luxembourg. Um, the, the truth is that 2001 was really strange and living through that experience way downtown was surreal and it, it was something that slowly receded into being a little bit of post-traumatic stress and then and then memories and then distant memories and all throughout that fall and winter, I don't know if you remember, there were anthrax scares everywhere and New York City was also under all sorts of bomb threats, including bizarrely the building I worked in, which had a disgruntled employee who, as it turned out, a disgruntled employee, somebody was calling in bomb threats to our building every few days, and this went on for weeks. The whole building would evacuate and wander around Midtown while we awaited the all-clear to come back to work. And eventually, by the fifth or sixth time of this, we stopped paying attention to the bomb threats. We stopped leaving the building, and there were all these clusters of, of National Guardsmen and police walking around with assault rifles and <laughs> just sitting at our desks, and we'd slowly pushed past it and we're just living in this scary city. But, you know, this the city stopped being scary and not only did it stop being scary from a terrorist point of view, it also became uh, such a, a sterile, clean and safe version of New York. I grew up in the city in the 1970s when, my God, it was a dangerous place. Uh, the high murders were something like 22, 2300 murders a year, and now there's something like 300 a year. That this has become a much safer city uh, in the in my lifetime. And leaving was not a question of being scared of New York. Leaving was just a question of wanting to try something new. And my wife got a job in of all places Luxembourg. Um, but it wasn't a specific decision to flee New York. Okay. Well, um, on the sort of a scary thing, but on another level entirely. Why did you decide to stop being a book editor and start actually writing the books yourself? Well, that's a that's a great question. Um, I, I was in my late 30s, and I, I got in a job that was less about editing and more about the business of books and um, the price of paper that we bought two months earlier and renegotiating this deal with that vendor and this marketing plan, and it all ended up looking a little bit to me like I might, might as well be dealing in widgets and it was a question of hiring and firing people and budgets and I just didn't love it. I didn't love that part and I had a, a crisis of confidence in my ability to move forward in this industry for another 20, 30, 40 years working in offices where um, the thing that grown-ups are supposed to do is to run the business. And I realized I was never going to be one of the grown-ups running the business. And if I wasn't going to do that, then I was going to be doing the same exact editing job that I'd been doing 10 years earlier. And was that really what I wanted to do? It was just this one thing, just this thing, edit books from the time I was young until the time I was old and not do anything else. And 
um, the answer was no. I don't want to just do this. I want to write a book. And um, this job that I didn't like, this businessy job that I didn't like, was the thing that kicked me in the pants to say, if you're going to write, it's time to get started. You need to walk out of here and you need to start writing. So that's what I did. Wow. Nice. <clears throat> okay. I'm going to go way off topic here because I just did something that um, uh, over the weekend I went to a bookstore down, down the street and I, and I saw these books and I had to buy them. And they're from our childhood. And I wanted to know if you guys enjoy these things as much as I do. <laughs> do you guys remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books? <laughs> do you I remember those? Well, I, I never had anything to do with them. I know that they were a thing, and I remember other people having them, and I came to the life of being understand why I did not. So you never read one? No. Oh, um, yeah, and I know, Jeff, you had to. Uh, well, well, I will say um, that I might actually be uh, given an opportunity to write one of these in the future. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. So, but now, Chris, but you know the idea behind those books, though, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, what a great little premise. I mean, could you, like, write something? I mean, could you ever think about saying, you know what, just for fun, like, writing something like that where, you know, the reader is involved in the story and has to pick, you know, which way to go to kind of see which story they're going to get, like they're <laughs> the character? It just happened on well, Netflix. It has happened on Netflix? A black Black Mirror. There was an episode of Black Mirror where you got to choose, using your remote, which way you wanted the story to go. Is that right? Um, mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I I tend to think of that as my job. Uh, you know, every, <laughs> people start somewhere, and then there are there are an infinite number of places you can go. And the farther along you get in the book, the the narrower your choices get until the very end. Hopefully, when there's only one or two choices you can make about how it's going to work out at the very end. But I think that Choose Your Own Adventure is, in fact, uh, the, a reader's version of, in fact, being a writer. That that's what, that's what you do when you sit down to figure out what's going to happen in the plot of a book. Is of all the choices you think about, should this happen, should this happen, should this happen, here are the three or four or ten possible things that can happen to this character next. Which one am I going to choose and what's going to then happen after that and after that and after that? until whatever end I think I'm headed towards, uh, which in my case has often ended up to be something unexpected to me, that once I've started writing, uh, I've very often realized that the thing that I thought was going to be the end at the end of my outline is no longer the end, and I've now added on a couple of extra reveals past that, which necessitate going back to the beginning to make other fixes. That's the whole choose-your-own-adventures what I feel like I've been doing for the past 10 years is I sit at my computer and type every morning. Well, I, I have to ask now, since he sort of went along those things. Um, <laughs> I you just never know where I'm going to go. That's the fun part. <laughs> yes. Um, could you tell me about Wine Log? <laughs> what? Wow, that's a deep cut. Um, <laughs> what? I wrote, and I'm I'm using the word wrote in the broadest sense because the book that we're referring to to here is almost entirely blank. Um, I wrote a book called a wine, the wine log, a wine log, the wine log, a journal and companion in the late 1990s when 
uh, I myself drinking wine, thinking I want a place to take some notes on the wines that I've been drinking because I, I got convinced that there's this important thing that happens when you translate sensory experiences into language by writing them down or, or vocalizing them in your brain that helps cement the memories. And I wanted to increase my memory of the wines I was taking, tasting and make myself a better wine taster and make myself more knowledgeable about the subject. So I looked around for a journal, a wine log, to keep my notes in, and I discovered that there were zero of them. So I thought I could fill a hole in this marketplace, and I wrote one and got it published. And I think it was published in 1998 or something like that. And uh, 20 years later, I still, in fact, get a royalty check at least once a year. They're very, very small checks. Um, as well they should be because the book is, again, almost entirely blank. I wrote an introduction and a glossary and possibly some notes on how to taste wine, but other than that, it's really just lined pages for you to take notes. And I wouldn't say that it's my most successful book, but it's certainly the book of mine that's been in print the longest, and I've gotten the most distinct number of checks from it. So it's not unsuccessful. That's hilarious. I love it. But I think I'll ask. My last royalty check was for something like forty-five dollars. Well, that's actually pretty good. I got a royalty check for zero once. <laughs> they actually printed a check for zero. Zero dollars and zero cents. Yes. No. Well, <laughs> it's an I mean, mode. that's just. I don't get people. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> so, Chris, hey man. Um, so where's the best place for everyone to find out about uh, everything that you got going on? Is it just your website, chrispavone.com? Exactly. That's it. And do you do a lot of social media? Are you out there? Do you go to a lot of events so people can, like, see you on the road? I do. I'm, I'm doing uh, two and a half, three weeks of events at publication and other things here and there. Um, I'll be... I'll be pretty busy in May and June. Uh, I go to the normal things that other crime writers go to, not all of them, but I'm a regular attendee of Bouchercon and Thriller Fest and things like that. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I go out and do absolutely everything, but I, I like getting out there into the world um, and not sitting by myself at my desk all day long talking to my dog who increasingly is wondering if I'm crazy. And uh, I might be wondering the same thing. <laughs> well, hey, I'll be at Thriller Fest this year, so I'll have to make sure I stop by and say hi. And uh, I will, great. too. I look forward to it. Yeah, yeah. We, have, we haven't been there for three years, so we're finally coming back um, this this time. So it'll be good. Well, it's it's Midtown New York in July. What could be better? Um, exactly. Los Angeles and uh, <laughs> any time. <laughs> Basically anywhere, anytime. You know, oh my God, July in New York is like sometimes walking into a sauna and then you get wet because of the rain and then the steam room turns on. Yep, you got it. Man, I know. Well, I used to live in Ohio, so I'm used to that weather too. And then we moved to Minnesota and then out to California. Uh So I've been into the absolute heat and I've been into the absolute cold and now I found paradise. Well, congratulations. Yeah, yeah, you know. But it costs no a lot of traffic. <laughs> but Well, Chris, again, we want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, the book is The Paris Diversion. It is out on May 7th. So 
and read it. Read it. Yeah. <laughs> and hey, well, right <laughs> now is a good time. You know, you're going to get a link. You're going to get like a week, so you can get the X backs, and then you can uh, pre-order the Paris Diversion. And there's a couple standalones in there too from Chris that we didn't have a chance to uh, go into. But again, go to his website, chrispavone.com. So thank you again, Chris. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Chris. All right, take care. All right, bye-bye.